pronounce your name correctly for me. Hi. Yes, it's Tricia Wright. And you're currently in New York, but you're not from New York. No, I'm from England. I moved here in 1999 with my then husband and two small children. And it was quite a leap. I mean, it, it was an interesting sort of development, really. My husband, at the time, he had the opportunity to sort of head up this New York office. He was in publishing. And he first put it to me, and I was saying, well, that's crazy. You know, we can't move to New York. We have two small children. And I just thought it was just kind of a crazy idea. And then I was really in a rut. I had, as I say, two small children. The youngest was two. I hadn't been making any of my own work for seven years, couldn't afford childcare. It wasn't like the thing that I wanted to do was a paid job in which I could have afforded the childcare. So me to afford childcare, I would have had to do a job that I wasn't particularly interested in. I still wouldn't have been making any art. So I wasn't making any art for seven years, really, in total. I really was in a rut. So after he sort of proposed this move to New York and I really sort of shut it down initially and he carried on as usual it really took root in me and in the end I was the one who was really pushing for the move um, and so we ended up moving as, an, as a whole family and the reason really I think I ended up in this country was due to an experience I had earlier when I was 26 and I won a travel award well it wasn't a travel award it was an award an art award sponsored by a travel company it was for a painting <laughs> it funded me basically to travel to Canada and I didn't really want to go to Canada so I flew to Toronto on this award money and drove, and went straight down into New York and spent four weeks traveling up and down the east coast in all of the sort of new york cities where they had really good art collections i spent four long consecutive days in the met and i was kind of exhausted after four weeks and i ended up in philadelphia and was in the house of a friend of a friend of a friend and met this person just casual conversation who said he was going to be driving a car from boston to seattle and after we'd been chatting for about an hour, he said, well, why don't you come with me? And I said, okay, and drove across the country. It took about a week. I didn't know how to drive. So I, had, I just sat in the car for 12 hours a day, looking out the window at this incredible landscape. We went through the badlands. We went through all these amazing desert landscapes, which for me was a revelation growing up in England, you know, a small, dark, crowded, grumpy island. Being in the desert was like that Monty Python sort of cartoon where the top of your head flips up and the endless space. That was really the reason I ended up living in America by way of my husband's job change <laughs> from London to New York. Well, that's interesting. I was raised in America and I moved away. So I've, I'm now an expat living in Europe. So it's very fascinating, sort of the expat lifestyle and the choices that we make on where we go and why. Yeah. 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 It's a funny life, isn't it? Once you've been doing it for a few years, it has its own culture and it has its own 
advantages and disadvantages. Absolutely, yes. And yeah. Yeah, I, I when I, I had this very romanticized idea of being an expat, thinking like, oh, I'll come in and people will think I'm the exotic foreigner and I'll be like new and, and interesting. And no, they don't, they don't <laughs> give a shit. <laughs> nope. I'm an outsider. And as far as they're concerned, like I'm transient. Like, so like they expect me to come and then be tired of it or not like it and leave. And so they don't really accept you very quickly because they're not, they don't think you're going to stay. So that's an issue I've run into a number of times in my sort of transient lifestyle. Yeah, it's a hard one. I mean, one, I mean, moving into New York, you're blessed because what New York is one place where you don't have that feeling. And it's a wonderful feeling to be an outsider in a sense because you do get to see your own culture more clearly and you see the culture that you've moved into in a, in a sort of outsider perspective. But not all cultures are as welcoming. I mean, I'm a daughter of an immigrant. And so I grew up in a country where, which was not my mother's country. And I was very conscious of her being an outsider. And I had, my mother passed away and I bought a little cottage from, we sold her house and split up and everything. And I bought a tiny little cottage in Ireland so that I could keep my connection to my Irish roots, which is, which are very strong. I've been spending my time in Ireland since I was a baby. You know, and I was more close to my mother's side of the family, and that is the Irish side. But when I'm in Ireland today, my they hear my English accent. I will never be accepted, and that is my heritage. <laughs> but I'm considered a blow-in. That's the expression. Yeah, there you go, blow-in. I like that. Blow-in. Yeah, I just accept it. It's a choice. It's a lifestyle choice. Yeah, and you know. Like I don't really want to be in America right now, or I, I certainly have didn't want to be there in the last four years. Still, don't really want to be there now. <laughs> so, I'm perfectly fine with my choices at this moment. Now, you mentioned something about like the seven years of taking some time off to to raise children and stuff. This is a topic that's come up uh, with previous guests a number of times. And so, my question sort of for you would be like, how did the experience of a having that gap in your cv and the experience of being coming a parent sort of change your artistic career well to answer the first question it created a, a lag that i have never been able to catch up on and i think that's probably fairly typical and it was quite a long lag i sent seven years when I moved to New York, one of my conditions was that I would have a studio. And at that point, my youngest child was entering preschool and I had exactly two hours and three quarters a day. <laughs> and quite often I would drop him off and get a phone call literally as I had arrived in the studio saying, will he cry for two and a half hours? And I would say, yes, he probably will. And I'd have to go and get him. You know, it was a very, even even after seven years, it was very truncated. It was very slow, and I was the primary caregiver and not able to do the social networking, and that's huge. It's not just the time that you can spend in the studio; it's the time you can spend connecting with other artists and pursuing opportunities like residencies. I never did a residency. My first residency was last year. <laughs> At Dudenay. Well, yes, and 
uh, also one after an actual residential residency that I did just shortly after. But that wasn't something that was possible. So that it's not a complaint, but it's a reality. I haven't had the career I possibly would have had. I wasn't able to pursue a path that would have yielded different results. And that's just a reality. It did change the work, to answer the second question. Things germinate underground, percolate slowly. You don't really conscious of them but they come out differently. It did. My work did emerge differently. There was a sense of urgency and a desire for kind of, I don't know, sensory pleasure that wasn't in the work before. And being embedded in the home so thoroughly, it was in, inevitable, I suppose, that that became much of my subject matter. A lot of my work has been about the home, and defending it as a place of dignity and then and also using the materials of the home the fabric the physical fabric of of the domestic sort of space bringing that into the art space that was a change okay take a step back give a, the listener a little bit of a sense cuz many of them probably have, don't might not know your name they might not know your work so give us a little sense of sort of what is it that you currently let's say currently produce the work that I have been making, I work in series form typically, and my most recent series have really been about space, like domestic space, feminine space, or what is considered feminine space, literally and figuratively. I mean, I've been making work that presents spaces in which things are unfolding, like stage-like spaces or niches or inside bell jars, enclosed spaces, uh, spaces within a space to sort of metaphor, I suppose, for what it's like to be a woman's experience within the larger experience globally, really. Feel free to expand on that because, I mean, keep in mind for the listener, obviously with my voice, I'm a man. And so like, I don't know that feminine, like, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about sort of like sexism in the arts and racism in the arts and all kinds of these other things that keep coming up as topics that come up again and again. Like, so like, I guess the question would be sort of like, have you experienced any form of sexism? I sort of, I would say like, not like against you, but basically against you, uh, in your career. Not in my career, not actively, not that I'm aware of, not overtly. I have experienced it in my life. I certainly was shaped by sexist behaviour growing up as a as an adolescent in the community that I lived in. You know, it was definitely something that has shaped me. It's part of who I am. The work I'm really interested mechanics of pictorial representation so a lot of my work has been really looking at images from art history and looking at texts about women images of women and texts about women and sort of re-examining them altering them presenting them in a different light or presenting a new take on them and offering an alternative or ask, inviting the viewer to look at them and consider their impact and how they, like classical narratives, for example, can endure and still be influencing cultural thinking today. 
So one of my series is Pandora's Box. It takes a, an ancient text, the one that really has been handed down to us over time. The most familiar one was written by Hesiod, Hesiod the Greek, roughly 700 BC. And that story fascinates me. It really, it's a precursor to Eve. Its influence crops up in Christian religion, in Judaism, in how women are kind of described. It's the most incredible story. I mean, in Hesiod's world, he envisioned the world before women. Firstly, the world was originally populated only by men in his narrative, and it was a golden time. Pandora, the first woman, was created out of base clay as a punishment to men. And she was attributed entirely negative qualities, entirely, absolutely. There wasn't one good thing about her except she had physical beauty because she, she caused desire in men, which was in itself a negative attribute, but the beauty was, was okay. <laughs> that characterization of the woman being entirely negative has really stayed with us, ideas of beguile, weakness, deceitfulness. You see it in Adam and Eve, the story there. It's literally taking the story of Pandora and moving it over to Eve. So that's an interesting story. That is the kind of narrative or creation, fiction, really, that I'm interested in looking at and sort of highlighting. So would you define that as feminist art or art about feminism? That's a really good question, because <laughs> I think about that a lot. No, it's it's not feminist art, and I'm not an artivist either. Okay. It's not, I'm, I mean, I, I haven't got an issue, obviously, with that, but I think about it a lot. I'm interested in formal things, primarily. This is my subject matter. I have a very strong desire to say something, communicate ideas. That is undeniable, but the things that really excite me on a day-to-day -day basis in the studio are things like form, color, space, composition. This is the kind of vehicle for those things. But I am a feminist. Lovely. Me too. <laughs> All right. So these days, what's your... Uh... What's your, what's your life like? So like, are you a 100% practicing artist? Do you have other tasks or jobs that you do also? Like what's your, uh, you know, sort of the, like your income stream? So like, are you selling work, exhibiting work, doing public arts? Like how are you sort of working this out? Well, for years I worked in sort of part-time kinds of capacities in different things. I worked in publishing in England and kept some of that going. So that's still actually some income through royalties, small, but still going. And I've worked in sort of museum education type situations for years, always part time. But now pretty much it's a full time studio. COVID changed <laughs> some of that, as it has done for many people. I've decided to really focus on the studio and change other things accordingly. Yeah, I was going to say a lot of 
artists have basically taken this COVID time and made it said, okay, I've been forced to not be able to do anything else. So I have more time to devote to producing more work. Like I have a belief that when the world opens back up, there is going to be this glut of art that everybody's been creating in their isolation that suddenly it's like, mm. I have an entire finished series all done because I've had a year and however many months to work on it. It's, it's been a very strange year. I mean, for many people, it's been like devastation of loss and people losing work that they really want. For other people, there have been opportunities or permissions even is a better word to stop doing things that you don't want to do or start doing things that you really want to do my brother is an artist too and he's a few years older than me and he has spent his entire working life teaching and raised five children or had five children time has always been a premium in in his in his life and he for the first time had this time where he couldn't work and he couldn't see anyone, and he was almost giddy with the sort of joy of it. I actually had the opposite experience in a way because of COVID. I I went to Ireland in March last year before it had really kicked off. It being discussed, and I went with my son, and we were, I remember being in the airport and saying, look, just be careful. We weren't wearing masks or anything like that. And we went to Ireland for what was to be a 10-day trip. About, I think, seven days into the trip, I got a panicked phone call at 3 a.m. my time from my husband saying, you have to come home or they won't let you come back. It had just escalated while I was there. So I sent my son back because he was graduating from his master's program and wanted to be back. And I decided to stay and ended up staying for seven months. What was a 10-day 10 10 day trip ended up being a, a seven-month-long experience. Oh, yeah, I went back because of a death in my family to visit my family in the United States. What, what was supposed to be a three-week trip ended up being a three-month trip because yeah. all flights between Europe and the United States got stopped. Yeah. So, yeah, I totally understand that. It was very odd because I was in a a very tiny little cottage with hardly any furniture because we had only really just got it and I had no car and we had a very strict lockdown where you could only walk for two kilometers a day then it went to five so I was completely isolated no materials just what I had in my suitcase I didn't even have a table I was balancing planks that I found in the shed on top of buckets and cans of beans and things like this it was very odd and totally isolated. I was alone for three months. And I would just walk in these loops around the lanes, up and down the lanes, along the water, in the fields, in the woods. And it was just me and the cows and me and the grass and me and the water for three months. It was like there's some weird retreat. And I couldn't work at all. When it really threw me. My context was gone. It made me think about what I was making in New York. It made absolutely no sense in Ireland. And it it really upended my whole process or my whole practice, I suppose. For many people, this entire pandemic has been very uh, life-changing in your perspective mm. of how you approach whatever you're doing. So whether, like, I know a lot of people who have 
during this time said, well, I, I hate my job. And if I'm going to you know, potentially get a life-threatening illness just by going to the grocery store, I want to enjoy my life and my job. And so a lot yeah. of people are changing careers, getting into relationships or out of relationships or whatever, you know, to try and re- because there's a lot of sort of, I want to be happy in my life, you know, whatever that means. And so I want to be, and in like the case of what we're talking about right now is like, I want to be making the work that I want to be making, not something that I think I should be making. No, exactly. And and I felt being away from my home, which is in New York, for so long, I started to feel like I have gone very, very far down this rabbit hole that's politically driven. It's so much about the kind of culture that I'm living in and being in a very different culture, not that it doesn't have its own problems but they're different ones I really felt like I needed to focus on something else which is emerging but not fully formed still now you keep saying New York are you in New York City or New York State bit of both my husband has an apartment in Brooklyn and he works purely in the city and I have a house with a studio which is where I spend most of my time in Kingston upstate so we both go back and forth. But actually, that's changing again because of COVID. We decided to basically join forces and move to a single place. And we're in the process of trying to do that. Probably a good time to buy, I would imagine. Yeah, hopefully. Not a good time to sell, but a good time to buy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, so your works, are you represented by galleries right now? No. Have you ever been represented by galleries? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any interesting stories about uh, gallery representations? <laughs> Not really. I hold on to this, I think, probably outdated idea that I would really love a relationship with a gallery. It's something that feels like it would be so straightforward. I think that as an idea has gone and the whole gallery relationship has changed, but that's something I, I still would really love to have that idea of a relationship a supportive kind of thick relationship with a provided an avenue for showing the work oh, it, that idea of just having a support network whether that's a group of friends peers or whether that's a gallery or even some curators that somehow support you is of the utmost importance to your sanity as an artist because otherwise you're just making work in a vacuum and you have no idea if it's any good or if anybody's going to connect with it or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And I have never taught. Well, I have taught. That's not true. I've done sabbaticals for people. I've covered for people and I've you know, stepped in and done the odd semester here and the odd semester there. But it's not something I really, really wanted to do. But I do know my, my brother, like I said, my brother's been teaching for hundreds of years, it feels like. And he's been in this environment that is by its nature validating your pursuit as an artist. You know what I mean? it, it is a support network just by its existence. And to be a studio artist, you're very much on your own in that way. And you have to be very self-sustaining, which is, I think, why for me, work moving into public art has been so hugely satisfying because I feel like there is a straightforward relationship between the the work I make and where it goes you know it has a function okay so public art let's get into that I've been 
I actually used to run a public sculpture program and I've been on committees for public art and all kinds of different stuff throughout my career. It, it can be either really, really magnificent and beautiful and fabulous, or it can be the biggest pain in the ass because it ends up being like work made by committee and like all this kind of bullshit. And it, so how, what were your experiences? Cause they, it, could, it could go either way. So like, what did you do like a, an RFP and then you, you went through a, a jurying process or was the like, so, you know, how did it come about? It was through submitting, you know, previous work. It, this was for the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority for New York. <laughs> that I had submitted work to them a number of times. They had work of mine in their files, and I was asked to put forward an RFP, a proposal, which I did, and mine was selected. And I had an actually a, a wonderful experience. They are very supportive of the artists. I worked with Yarling Chen. She was the manager of the project that I was working on and extremely supportive of the artist's vision and the artist's ideas, really, and their work. It was challenging, though, I have to say. It was quite a grueling experience in many ways because things changed. Engineering specs dimensions literal dimensions will change and you redesign and you redesign it's quite stressful and mine was in two materials so it was almost like two projects in one it was in glass which involved a glass fabricator and a whole set of conditions and then it was in metal that involved a metal fabricator and a whole other set of conditions simultaneously <laughs> it was challenging to say the least Oh, it absolutely can be. I mean, I've been on committees where like they literally would say like, I love what you've proposed, but can you make it a little bit more blue? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or we're going to lower the ceiling by a foot and a half. Oh, is that one you ran know, into? Oh, that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, it happens. it happens. But I mean, it takes a certain kind of artist to be willing to and then also to be able to successfully do public art projects because a your subject matter is you know depending on what you're doing like if you're a landscape painter you're not probably going to do a public art thing you know you do figurative work you're probably not going to do a public art thing like so a your subject matter already has to be somewhat appropriate let's say to like the masses and public uh, non-confrontational non you know uh not causing any kerfuffle in the news mm. and all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, it takes a certain kind of artist. And then, of course, there's the whole, like, dealing with the bureaucracy because, I mean, there's a lot involved in that. I mean, this is what people don't understand. Like, I've been part of this. So, like, the sheer volume of work and time of, like, writing text, proposals, getting quotes, oh. <laughs> handing in receipts, like, all that kind of crap is immense. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, how how long did your process, so like from RFP submission until completed, how many years did that take? A year and a half, I suppose. That's very fast. Maybe a bit more, a year and three quarters, yeah. And everything went smoothly? Uh, there, were, there were moments of genuine panic where you know, your body temperature just escalates and you just panic. 
you know, measurements and but ultimately went smoothly. It all fit. My biggest fear was that it, things wouldn't fit. Mathematics is not my forte, and there's a lot of maths in in this stuff. You know, fourteen stainless steel panels and six glass panels and changing specifications and sort of moving targets and yeah okay wait now so based on that idea i want to go back a little bit so like i was introduced to you through Dudenay, and then you now are talking about working in glass you were talking about working in household fabrics you seem to be floating between mediums throughout your career i mean like so like where where did you start and sort of how many different mediums did you go through a but then the the bigger part of that is like is that was that probably beneficial or detrimental because the the old saying is like you know do one thing and master it and sort of stay with it and be known for that thing but you seem to have sort of evolved through different materials. And so like, has that been to your advantage or to your detriment? I imagine it's been to my detriment. (laughs) I can pinpoint a certain thread that goes through all of the work, but it's not necessarily visible on the surface. And I have a, a willfulness, I suppose, to not, to not want things to be necessarily visible on the surface too. To go back to the first part of the question, I actually, I chose to go to a college that had a very strong figurative tradition. It was Camberwell. And I was very interested in sort of the Lucian Freud and that sort of that whole lineage of painting. So I was painting portraits and figures for years I don't think that that was necessarily the right college for me. I come from a working class family. My brother and I were the first to go to college in our family. He, as I mentioned him, he's older than me. He went to college to art school. So he was really the only role model I had in that sense. So I sort of followed along in that kind of art sphere. Probably should have gone to somewhere like the Slade, which has a whole other lineage of pictorial sort of language. But sort of that's neither here nor there but it was kind of a long journey it's a slow journey I have used all these different materials but it started off as painting from life it just got slowly further away further and further away from painting from life to sort of into abstraction fully into abstraction where I was pouring and no imagery at all and there was a great sense of liberation with that happened when I started painting again after I had had my long break with you know, young children, that feeling of sensuous pleasure. But that wasn't really sustaining for me. I mentioned before, I have a strong desire to make my point, to say something, to communicate ideas. And abstraction was frustrating to me that there was too much implying. I kept trying to imply things through the material. And obviously, I, I needed to be more overt and make a statement. So I started then in making work that actually has felt like a really natural fit for me. It's sort of to have image, but it to be rendered in a schematic or stylized way. So it's something that just stands for the thing rather than sort of describes the thing. And I've worked in variations of that in a way ever since, whether it's in textiles or using objects or in paintings and bringing photography or photographic elements into my paintings. There's something that I think of a lot 
And it goes back, I believe, to coming from a working class background and not coming from an environment in which art or education on that level played much of a part, that I didn't grow up knowing how things worked with an innate sense of style or taste in with regard to the arts as children of famous artists do. You know, I make my work sort of outside of that. There are very few of us that come from children of famous artists. But you see, there's a there's a different path. Well, it's funny, like my, I have an older brother, well, I had an older brother, he recently died, but I had an older brother and he and I, my bro, my father is a very creative painter and all kinds of different things. He's also a priest, but he does paint and he does other things. And my mother's an interior decorator. And so I come from a household of aesthetics, like, you know, everything looking beautiful. So like I was raised in that, my brother was raised in the same household, but he just rebelled against it, you know, to no end. Uh, so it's very interesting, like the nature versus nurture, like how much of that, because like we were brought up in the same household. I picked up on my parents' sort of aesthetic and style, and I have a very similar taste to them, whereas my brother had a very opposing taste to them. And so I'm, I'm often wondering, like, how much of that was instilled by them and, and how much of it was our acceptance of it or our, appreci- our choice to appreciate it. Yeah. I could be wrong. <laughs> I can't remember why I wanted to say this now. I've lost my thread. <laughs> Sorry, interrupted. No, no, you didn't. The trouble is the questions, there are always sort of four answers and it's trying to figure out which bit to go with first. You can go with all of them. It's fine. We got time. It's materials. You talked about my work not having a, a singular sort of style, say. Uh, that's what it is. That's what That was the answer I wanted to have. It's about style. Style, for me, it's inextricably bound up with taste. And I'm suspicious of that. And I think taste comes from background and class. So I have wanted to use materials that work against those ideas, like using materials that are considered trivial or crass. But I've also wanted to make a work that doesn't have a singular style because I want to point to the fact that it is a matter of taste often. I'm very interested in in art that breaks those kinds of logics, that works against the idea of uniformity and style as a way of highlighting that this is just a choice. It's, It's not a given. That makes sense. It does. I mean, because I come from a photography background, and in photography, they always talk about having a style, like a signature style, a thing that sort of iconically says, This was made by so and so photographer, because, you know, like you could recognize a Richard Avedon, you could recognize, uh, you know, different, mm. different artists or different photographers throughout the century because they had their unique style. But these days, I feel like that need for an iconic style has sort of gone away a little bit. Like it, it feels like we we can as long as we have a 
a conceptual thread through our stuff. So like we can change topics, we could even change techniques and all this kind of stuff like you've done through your career, as long as there's sort of a thing that still says like it was done with the same intention or the same purpose or the same concept underlying it, which was not true even 30 years ago. But now it seems okay. Yeah, I think that's got to be connected to the change in from the physical to the sort of limitless nature of the art world. You know, you had before the internet, you have this tiny art world and they're very regional. You know, New York artists thought that New York was the center of the world. London artists thought London was the center of the world. And they're provincial. It's a provincial way of thinking, even though New York would never think of itself as a provincial place. Right. But it is a provincial way of thinking. And that's really the last time there was any kind of sense of movement, you know, abstract expressionism or pop artists, the last sort of coherent things where people can sort of look at it as a package. With globalization and then and the internet, you've got a completely exploded art world where you've got many, 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 many small parts and much more sort of equalizing situation and the rise of the art fair, the global art fair. So it's, you can't get a sense of, dominant movement say it's it's tiny little parts i think it does open up a space for that well that whole sense of movements has been something that i've been wondering about because i'm getting older and i'm starting to look back going like okay am was i part of a movement like was my style that i did 20 years ago part of a thing and i started noticing that a lot of those like if I was part of a movement, so I'm not going to be arrogant enough to say like I was part of a movement, but if I was part of a movement, it was still going to be a regional movement. It was going to be I was in the San Francisco Bay Area in the aughts. And so it's going to be of that location and that time in a way that like there was, you know, pr like everything pre po postmodern, I'd say to me, like postmodern is pretty much the end of quote-unquote movements like there's nothing else past that because then on the one hand it became globalized so therefore there wasn't that provincial sort of regional thing because like even the postmodern like is different in America than it was in Europe than it was in you know different parts of the world so like all of those kinds of things like movements are have always been provincial whether the provincial is just the UK or just Paris or just New York or Europe or America like they're going to be still different even if they're supposedly under the same movement and so like I often look back and I'm like I wonder if I'm going to be able to be said to be part of a movement and I wonder what they're going to call that movement yeah I wonder the same thing actually do you think you were part of a movement sadly I don't if I was it would have been Washington DC in the late 1990s there was a I went to a school that had a very distinct outcome so like almost anybody that left that school it was very much oh you went to that school like literally by the style of your work they knew who you learned from and that you had gone to that school and they could even probably tell which professor was your favorite professor kind of thing so like but even that, that's very a provincial thing. Like the, you know, like the only people who are going to know that are the people that either lived in or studied the Washington, D.C. art scene. So like it's really hard because now we're so globalized. And so like how do you find that those connections? You know, I mean, 
I have difficulty with it. I'm, you know, I'm an expat in, in the Czech Republic, don't speak the language as well as I should. And, and I, it's difficult for me to connect. And then you try to do it virtually, but that's never quite as good as reality. So like, it's, it's a really tough time with the sort of the, the expansiveness of the artwork that also also encourages this provincial or the sort of localization of the artwork as well. It's difficult. Like, where do you spend your time? Like, is it more important to go to an art opening and socialize and, and create those networks and communities? Or is it more important to put your time into internet based things, social media and making those global connections? I have no idea what the right answer is, but I know I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> Well, it just makes me feel deeply weary, that idea of spending my time trying to make a mark in this massive, global, shapeless thing. I guess that, that so much discussion about community that you, you know, that's sort of in the air, the zeitgeist really is community, yeah, I guess, is a, is a response to that, a need. But in terms of making art, I feel like I make art in isolation really and always have it's a solitary pursuit you have your people that you kind of look back at I'm very interested in art history so I spend a lot of time looking at that work and I'm interested in the sort of long communication of ideas not so much be connecting to something that to try to find something that is mine now, like some community of mine now. Well, the other part of that that affects me, I don't know if it affects other people, but it affects me is the speed of the art world seems to have increased exponentially. They seem to be wanting you to make more and more work, more content, whether it's for social media or for you know new things to at least just put update your website or whatever it is. Like there's this incessant desire for us to be producing more and faster and then of course higher quality because now we're being compared to everybody in the world versus just the people in our own community do you feel that yeah okay yeah and I cannot do it <laughs> you know the post every other day I can't there's a whole, I have great discomfort with the whole social media thing anyway. You know, the feeling I was raised to be reserved in that way. I reserved art. The author is behind the canvas or whatever. I don't really respond to sort of gestural work, you know, where it's all, see the evidence of the hand, all of this stuff. So I'm very uncomfortable with that, you know, opening my private world making it public on a daily or every other day basis it just doesn't fit with who I am oh I, I totally think it's a generational thing because yes. I have zero interest in letting people into my like my studio practice yeah. even at all yeah. because like I, my thing is like when I'm in the studio let's say I'll be working on like five different things out of those five things Maybe if I'm lucky, one of them will be successful, but I don't want everybody in the world no. to see the four <laughs> no. failures, no. like as I'm failing at them, because that's horribly embarrassing. Yeah. I, you know, I'm still of the generation that I believe that the only things I should put out into the world are my absolutely perfect, successful works, yeah. and nobody should see my failures. 
you know, I often I joke about this, but I went to a convent grammar school. I wore a uniform <laughs> from my whole childhood. And we had it really instilled in us that how you present yourself to the world matters. And you are representing this school. And this is a long time ago, but I mean, my God, those things stay with you. I can't really, I can't undo that. It's too tied up. But it was interesting, though, about exposing your failures. The residency experience at Giudone was scary for me in that way because I wasn't able to prepare and make all my mistakes in, you know, in the comfort of my own studio. It was in front of people and everything that I did was sort of visible. That was really quite an experience. I've learned to embrace it a little bit, mm -hmm. not a lot. And <laughs> I'll, I'll do like uh, Instagram stories. Like I'm fine with showing failures for one day, but I'm not leaving them on the internet for people to find <laughs> in yeah. the future. Yeah. But they, they can see my potential failures for one day. That's all they get. Yeah, That's my increments. All right. You mentioned something about like, well, I heard something about like state like statements and like talking about the work and things like this. I'm always fascinated about creating, writing artist statements because like you're doing, you've done, you've got a Paula Krasner, uh, you've done a Dudenay, and then and you're also doing public arts. All of those things involve writing eloquently about your work. So how are you finding that process of needing to write? artist statements and or sort of some text descriptions of your works? I don't like it, I have to say. <laughs> but actually, I have always really taken from texts. I mean, that texts have been part of my work, like poetic texts, even anti-texts, like Hesiod's text from 700 BC. They're things that are really in the work I've been making work that come directly out of poems. And so there's a sort of word component to them. And I have found that in writing statements, it helps me understand the work better. I enjoy words. I like writing, but I mean, I don't enjoy the statement to, you know, to the sort of must not exceed 3000 characters in the little box. It's hard. It is. But it does. It is useful. Yeah, it does get easier the more you do it, for sure. But it's one of those things that, like, if, if any given day where I have a choice of I could sit down and write a new artist statement or I can go in the studio and make new work, I'm always going to choose to make new work. <laughs> when I was in Ireland, as I, I said before, it really threw me for a loop. I decided, well, I'd write my experiences because I couldn't make art and I couldn't even conceive of what art I would make if I had materials. So I, I, I was walking in these loops and I would come home and I would write down everything that I saw and thought and felt. That was kind of interesting because it, like, it was like writing a statement without the work. It was the kind of encapsulation of the ideas without any physical object involved, just the, just the experience. All right. I also mentioned that on your CV it says you did a... I'm not even sure what exactly what it is. Paula Krasner, and then it says and art mid Hudson grantee. So those are separate grants. Yeah. 
there's set no it was Pollock Krasner provided funds for the Art Mid Hudson to present an award. Okay, so it's not a Pollock Krasner, but it's funded by Pollock Krasner. Yeah, it's like a variation, I guess. All right. So Grant, what what kind of I'm always interested because for the first time in my adult career, I got recently got a grant for this podcast, which you'll hear in the beginning, where we're sponsored by or supported by uh, a grant from the EEA. So, like, I'm fascinated by the whole granting system. So, like, what 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 did you apply for? What did you receive a grant for? I submitted artworks and was rewarded for the <laughs> for the quality of the artworks in a monetary way. Basically. Okay. Okay. So it's just a straight up cash award. Straight up cash award. Yeah. Lovely. I wish more countries would do that kind of stuff. America's not really known for just giving cash awards. No, no. And or subsidizing. That was something that was a shock to me when I moved here from London because there are lots of subsidies in Europe for art spaces. And yeah, there was none of that, none of that here. Yeah, it was a shock to me when I moved to Europe that there was all these subsidies. I was yeah. like, are, I mean, well, it's interesting because what happened was, okay, so I come from America. In America, it's very much a, you produce a product, you put that product on exhibition, you sell that product, you take the money from that sale to reinvest to make more artworks. Like that's the capitalistic way of America. <laughs> In Europe, it's you cut it, it seems like now maybe I'm wrong on this, but it seems like it's like you come up with a really great idea and then you pitch that idea through a grant or a residency or something like this. And then it's funded in its creation so that the actuality of exhibiting it and or selling it is totally irrelevant because the process of creation has already been paid for. Mm. I love that idea. Well, that values activity itself as opposed to just the product like there is a saying in Iceland that there's a statue to the only person who's never written a poem because it's so (laughs) art and poetry and literature is so embedded in the culture oh yeah well the grant that we received for this podcast is from Iceland Norway and Liechtenstein so like and I get to I'm going to be going to visit Iceland for two times to do interviews with people in Iceland, Norway as well. So quite excited about that. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing place. As long as COVID breaks and we can actually travel. But yeah. Will you be going to Liechtenstein? That's an interesting place. It's not on the, it was not part of the grant, no. So, I mean, I'm sure I could, but it wasn't part of the plan. All right. Is there anything, any topics you want to talk about that I haven't brought up or things that you'd like to expand on that we didn't, that I didn't give you a chance to or interrupted you? I think going back to your question about different manifestations, um, I'm interested in pictures, not so much in having a chosen way of making. And I think that a lot of people do adhere to a kind of group one or another there's the sort of you know the geometric abstraction people or there's the people who believe gesture is equal to authenticity and I really have such an aversion to those sorts of ways of identifying like what's true and what's real and what's 
like you know is abstraction like the period that comes at the end of the sentence it's like the most logical thing and it's finished it's done all of that I'm really interested in just pictures how they come together is sort of not exactly by the by but it's a secondary issue I will make pictures or paintings that are a combination of painting by hand using an airbrush having a photographic sort of sighted image printed onto the canvas first, painting over a bit of that, making it unclear as to whether which is the photograph and which is a sort of photorealist bit of painting next to a kind of an area where you can see it's painted by hand. It really to just to draw attention to the fact that it is an artificial construct that we're looking at. And that's that's one of the things that sort of drives the work. It's like asking people to sort of see that these images should be questioned, the images and the sort of narratives, text and picture-wise that we live with are constructs. And so that's that's why the work looks the way it does so much of the time. So sort of drawing attention to the fact that these are artificial constructs. All right. Actually, something I just was glancing over at your, about you on your website, you, you said you have the works in collections and corporations and museums and things like this. Do you sell on a regular basis? Not no, especially. Okay. okay. No. It's nice to hear no. that because neither do I. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just looking for a little bonding of like, no. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know what else to say. That's just, it's been a long career of, of working and, and you just, work for yourself and you want the work to go out there and I have an audience in my mind that I am communicating to but the sales is a separate issue it's a tough that to me that's the like I'm not sure if again going back to like the European granting sponsorship kind of thing versus the American way like in America I was born or I was raised in the idea of like you should you want to sell like that's what qualifies you as a quality artist is the more sales you have but now that i'm in europe i'm like no like you can just be really good at ideas and you can make really interesting stuff and have it supported through things like your arts mid hudson grant and and the the grants that i'm getting here in the ea and this kind of stuff like it, it the the need to sell doesn't shouldn't necessarily be the thing that sort of is your ego that, that says like, I'm worthy, I'm making good work because I'm selling. But unfortunately that is a very prominent thing in America. It is, and in the art world too. I mean, I was really grateful to have this opportunity to talk about ideas. I have found, and something I found coming from England that I, I, I have for many years been surprised by other um, artists in opening say, not really wanting to talk about um, the work and trying to and not really getting very far. And I, and I don't know whether it's a cultural thing. Do you find that where you are, that people are interested in talking about the ideas and talking about each ideas to each other about the work as opposed to talking about what shows you've got coming up or those things? Absolutely. I actually had an experience where I, I went to an exhibition of this lady whose work I really love. I'm not going to say your name because this is not a great story. So this lady <laughs> who I really love. And I wanted, I was like, I would love to buy a piece. And I went up to her because I knew her and I said, Hey, I, 
I love this piece. How much does it cost? And she turns to me and she goes, oh, I don't talk about such things. <laughs> and I was just like, all right, that that's a cultural difference. <laughs> yeah. Like we're at an exhibition. I'm literally asking you how much does this cost because I'm willing to buy it and you don't want to talk about it. I'm like, all right, that yeah, that's a a change. But yeah, the, I mean, they they absolutely there's there does seem to be a strong sense of concept being very important, specifically in comparison to sales, like much more so. Uh, like artists seem like they're more revered and respected if they are if they almost if they live into that romanticized like they they toil away in their studio for days and months on end and you know and and never sell their whole lives like that's actually well respected more so than artists who almost they they like they would see it as like almost too commercial like they see that as decorative and commercial and a lot of people seem to look down on those people here I had that actually that real that experience at college in London there were, and especially given the school that I went to that that idea that word commercial has no traction today really but it was frowned upon it should be something that was vocational purely vocational and then to talk about money was absolutely you know bad taste and it meant that you weren't serious and like trivial decorative the fact that decorative was considered bad and commercial there was a sort of absolute separation between the fine arts and the commercial arts and all of that which has sort of gone away which is good but we were never given any you know it was never discussed how to actually make a life make a living unless you went into teaching and it was again a kind of purely vocational thing that's the other extreme too I mean I I would like to be able to just talk about ideas in openings not have to focus on sort of practicalities of the, the life as an artist, which is like, you know, the jobs, the openings, the exhibition sort of opportunities. It's, it's almost like it's taboo. See, it's funny. I feel like it's the other way around. Like I can't find enough. I find far too many people that are talking con concepts and not enough people who are telling me like, this is the way to actually make a living doing this. <laughs> like, like if, if, but I think part of it is probably like if I was making a living, then I would be like, okay, great. Then I don't need to talk about how to make a living because I know how to do that. But since that's the part I don't know how to do, that's the thing I want to know the most about. However, mm -hmm. on the flip side of it, like I do know how to make art. So I, I don't feel like I need to talk about that because I know how to do that. I have no questions really about that. But when I go to art openings, yeah, I would love to more to talk to artists about like, you know, the why, you know, why did they choose to make this? Like, I love the question why it used to be my parents used to always make fun of me because my question to everything was always why, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> they hated me for it, but whatever. <laughs> All right. So my last two questions, as you already know, uh, are could you give me three people that you find noteworthy? I am actually very attracted to sculpture, even though I'm a pictures person. 
oftentimes it's sculpture that I look at. So there are two artists who make sculptural work. One of them is Rachel Whiteread, an English sculptor, installation artist. She was very, one very sort of notable piece of hers was a house that she cast from the inside out effectively so that, and then pulled the rest of the house away. And what you're left with is all of the air and all of the objects that were inside the house made visible. It was called a memorial, I think. And it was just down the road from where I lived in London too. So it was an amazing thing to be able to go past. But she's a wonderful artist. And another one I like in a similar way, really, is Doris Salcedo, Colombian artist. And her work was sort of, was really shaped by the sort of violence of the culture that she was living in. And she merged domestic materials with concrete so she would sort of fill up the middle of a, of a wardrobe say and there'd be sort of little shreds of bone maybe embedded in the concrete and put little bits of fabric and there's sort of a real bringing together of domestic and and sort of political and the both of those artists there's a sort of poetic quality that I really respond to as well and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so interested in that sort of sculptural work of sort of the presence of objects another artist who I really look at for my own work is Patrick Caulfield, and who is not known very much in America at all, as far as I can make out. He's the same generation as a Hockney and Howard Hodgkins, a painter, very interesting painter, where he does that thing that I like very much, where he breaks the logic of a painting. He would have elements of almost photorealist work, tiny little quotations almost within a painting that's almost abstract, sort of flat, sort of deadpan humour, very elegant, saturated colour, very clear, not emotional. The emotional is embedded in the imagery, it's not on the surface, you know. I really, really think he's a wonderful artist. All right. And then my last question is advice for anybody through things you've learned through your career, positive or negative, that you've experienced that you could try to help the next generation navigate their path to success a little bit easier? I think this generation, in terms of parenting, this generation, it's a different world. Not that it's going to be easy, but I think it is slightly more set up and more understanding of what it is like to be a primary caregiver that you're not lacking in rigor and intellect because you stay at home, which was a prejudice. I think that the main thing is, though, to whatever you do, you have to make your work for yourself and you have to be self-sustaining. Is if you make it for someone else and they don't like it, you've really got nothing. So if you make your work for yourself, you can actually have a kind of sustaining life and it's rich and it's rewarding but it has to be done for yourself which is pretty hard you know in the context of what you were talking about the, the pressure on people to be producing building a kind of brand and getting your image out there and and you know your presence your social media presence every other day finding something different to say about your work and you know, aside of all of that, just the sustaining yourself. Yes, 
I'm I'm looking forward to when my wife and I are planning on having a child in the next couple of years, and I'm going to be the stay-at-home dad, and she's going to go to work because she works as an accountant and she has a nine-to-five job, and I'm a creative, and so I have much more flexible hours and stuff. So I'm very interested in sort of input on how what I should be expecting when I choose to be a, a stay-at-home caregiver and an artist at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> good luck <laughs> I think I'll be fine mm. it does do things to the mind though you it's a surprise you don't know how it will affect you but it shifts things yeah that didn't give me any confidence but okay <laughs> <laughs> it shifts things in interesting ways let's hope so yeah yes okay all right well thank you very much thank you it's a pleasure thank you for listening all the way to the end I have a great favor to ask of you, which is that, as you all know from previous conversations, I have a great disdain for the algorithm that rules our lives. But one thing that I have learned is is that when it comes to podcasts, the biggest thing to help us to gain more attention and more listeners and everything like this is is for you all to write reviews and to give star ratings uh, in your podcast feed. So Apple Podcasts, Google Play, etc. If you could write a review and or at least give like a nice rating, five stars greatly appreciated, that would help us immensely. And so I don't often ask for help, but I'd like your help. So thank you. Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to the EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.